Our scripture today is Luke 12, 16 through 21. Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a rich, certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Hey, Watermark, this is Sean. I'm one of your elders, and uh, this week was Tommy's birthday, so uh, if you haven't wished him happy birthday yet, definitely do that, but we gave him the week off. So I am excited to introduce our speaker tonight. Uh, she has been going to Watermark for eight years. Her and her husband, Jared, uh, have led a house church in St. Pete, and uh, I'm just excited to welcome up Lori Beth DiMaggio to uh, give our sermon tonight. Yes, hi, hello. So my name is Lori Beth, as Sean said, and I used to be one of your congregational representatives. Is this on? And now I just go here, and I also go to St. Pete House Church, and a few of them are here tonight, uh, scattered around with masks, so it's not just a big, sad, empty room. Though I'm still picturing a room full of people in their underwear. No, I don't do much public speaking, and I can't particularly imagine the underwear advice to be all that helpful, though the rest of you are virtual, so you might be. Um, truly, seriously, I feel the privilege to be speaking. The passage is not incredibly happy or flowery. Many parables are not. Um, but I feel I've been able to squeeze the juice out of the sadness in order to really take a good, hard look at my worldview. And that's what I'm hoping for us today. This passage covers material wealth and self-interest, particularly as it pertains to adulthood and planning for the future. So I'm going to pray. And then I'd like to start by hearkening back to my first taste of independent adulthood, of new adulthood, and then open, open up a roadmap, this parable, and take, see where we are compared to where we hope to be or where we're headed and sit in that difference. So let's pray. Lord, you see us and you know us and you love us. Thank you. I ask that you afford us the, the grace of self-awareness. Please just make clear the path forward. In your name, amen. All right, so studying this passage, I kept coming back to when I first became a new adult, some autonomy, some sort of say-so in how I contribute to the day and contribute back to the world. And I think that time for me was my second year of nursing school. So go there with me, if you will, or go there with yourself during like your similar new adulthood time. I moved to Nashville to a school a good bit more progressive than my conservative upbringing. And there was a lot of comparison, a lot of was what important to my childhood, to my family, still important to me now. 
I worked as a nanny for four boys, and I can vividly remember driving one of them home from golf lessons on his fourth birthday. And he was like reasonably pleased that it was his birthday, but he was like, but next year I'm gonna be five, and the next year I'm gonna be six, and when I'm six, I'm gonna watch TV all day, every day. And I was like, dream big, kid. That same semester, around that time, uh, my clinical, my training was on an oncology, a cancer floor in the hospital. And I can remember changing the bed sheets for a patient about my mother's age, listening to the doctor giving her her treatment plan for leukemia, which was likely caused by previous chemotherapy for breast cancer. She had a good prognosis. She would probably be fine, though she spent the like past 15 years of her life fighting cancer off and on. As I helped my nurse draw up an injection, which cost thousands of dollars, I just remember the patient telling us how lucky she was. Thankful for her life, her family to go home to, to breathe the fresh air, and to go back to her job. And it gave me a lot to think about while caring for those boys and for making, while making plans and friends in college. I think that we can agree that we know that there are things we should value. Like my patient said, family, friends who are like family, shared meals with loved ones, vocations that weave order and beauty into the world. And I think we do try to call out those things that are valuable here and try to reorient ourselves to the mismanagement of those priorities. Still, if we're being honest, we weave other things, other obligations and priorities into our lives that just consume us and misguide us and mislead us. And we feel powerless to change that behavior. Everything I say, I'm looking inwardly toward myself. Often, we are overwhelmed by life, inundated with too much of everything, too many possessions, too much food, too much stimulation, too many activities, too much work, too much information, and too many choices. As a consequence, most of us live scattered, hectic lives, racing from one task to another, juggling too many commitments, always living on the surface, and never really knowing ourselves or others. Nor have we the time and place to truly know God. This is our culture, an insatiable desire for more. We know it. We see it, but we feel we can't change it. The rich man is us in some way, asking us to take an honest look at our allegiance to our culture and evaluate how does that separate us from our values, from our relationships, and from God. So let's get into it, and let's start with the context of the passage. Luke is the author, the same author that we're currently studying in the book of Acts right now. Remember, he was a Gentile, and he was not around to interact with Jesus personally. He was after Jesus, but he was gathering eyewitness testimony from those who were around to interact with Jesus in order to capture both the historical and the theological significance of the life of Jesus. The audience for this passage, also similar to what we're studying in Acts, is Theophilus. And Tommy went more in depth on this um, in his very first sermon on Acts, which was like exactly a year ago, if you want to go back and review it. 
But basically, Theo means God. Phyllis captures the term for brotherly love. And there's three kind of main schools of thought. It's either the name of the guy who hired Luke to do the research. It's a historical account of the life of Jesus to defend Paul during one of his imprisonments. Or what we've been going with here, the general term for those who love God. Additionally, and this is important, Luke's audience would have been hearing this as a collective reflection on their culture instead of how our contemporary minds want to just individually identify with the rich man. Next, this passage is a parable. Parables were often used by prophets, rabbis, and teachers as illustrations intended to compare common elements of life with a purposeful way of living. So in this passage, common terms like agriculture, recreation, and death are examining priorities, community, excess. I read that Jesus was known for very startling, confrontational, provocative parables, drawing and pulling his listeners toward his kingdom message. In this passage, his listeners, like us, hear an idea that totally turns our culture's self-focused way of thinking upside down. Luke was educated, a well-connected, well-traveled man, likely living in a good degree of wealth and privilege himself. But his gospel has more parables that deal with Jesus' embrace of the poor and opposition to the elite than all the other gospels. So we need to value the way Luke valued that juxtaposition between privilege and opposition to the elite, or Jesus' opposition to the elite. We see this parable a certain way in our privilege. So we can point to the downfalls of the rich man, and we will, but we also must empathize with him, contemplating the warning and wrestling with the difference between what we know and what we do. Let's continue. So the rich man thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have no place to store my crops. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I will say to my soul, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. So yeah, we initially see this a certain way, or I do. Like, okay, he has too much for the space that he has, so he needs more space. Like, he could seize the moment better, but why is he foolish? He seems sensible. Jesus was known to share meals with other people. It's not just condemning drinking and being merry. And I started to see that I was identifying with the character. And I think our culture identifies with the character. So I have to ask, is there a level of privilege that comes with identifying with the guy who's troubleshooting his surplus? Like, should I spend this money on a chai tea latte again? I'm trying not to get too specific. But, so the last part of context is the societal perspective. In the first century, like, retirement wasn't a thing. It was actually just becoming a thing for Roman soldiers only, so they like would have money and not mutiny the king. And no, I was not born with this knowledge. I started researching the first century's uh, 
culture a little bit as I was studying this parable. But for everyone else, they worked until they were physically no longer able. There's not this concept of an equal opportunity where you work hard and you get this reciprocal dream in return. Once they were physically no longer able, like hopefully someone was there who could take care of them. It was an honor culture. So for those in privilege, there's not virtue in working overtime to separate from the pack and better your own self-interest. Separating from the pack almost always leaves someone worse off. This man accumulating more had a detrimental effect on the community. And the honor culture of this time would have easily pinpointed this as foolish. His greed was only possible in stealing the finite resources and the dignity from other people, therefore not considered rightfully his, and that was disgraceful. Also, this parable was told by Jesus in response to someone in the crowd asking for Jesus to weigh in on a dispute about his inheritance, like wanting more money at the expense of his relationship with his brother. So this overarching desire for success and then more success is what makes this character foolish. Allowing monetary contentions to separate ourselves from the pack, from communities, from our families is foolish. And it says something about me and about our culture that it takes any effort to see this as foolishness. Richard Foster is the author of The Celebration of Discipline. And in his chapter on simplicity, he argues that simplicity is the outward demonstration of our inward attitudes. And I'd like to go through the inward attitudes as he contrasts a focus on the kingdom of God versus the values and the motivations of society. So, number one, what I have is a gift. This inward attitude reflects the spiritual discipline of simplicity, and it positions itself against this resolute caution, what I have, I have gotten or earned. The rich man is pretending that he's earned this bounty that was given him. He's hoarding, proud, selfishly storing for himself. Would he soften if he knew that what he had was a gift? My husband and I are renovating or looking to renovate or move houses. And uh, you have better believe this shoulder angel is perched in my ear as I'm looking on Zillow. What I have is a gift. We have a house with one bathroom that my husband always seems to need while I'm taking my bath. It's a gift. Actually, as I was practicing, I had decided I was not going to say that. And here we are. What I have is a gift. Number two, the next uh, inward attitude of the spiritual discipline of simplicity is what I have is to be cared for by God. And the caution or distortion is what I have is my responsibility. The rich man does not need anybody else. And this allows us to peer into the very prideful but very common inclination that we can make it on our own. This Worldview has been termed practical atheism by some scholars and means that the inward attitude of selfish ambition outwardly reflects a life as though there is no God. So if we're the church and we engage in this culture of selfish ambition, people can see us outwardly demonstrating a life as though there is no God. 
Theologian N.T. Wright says that the kingdom of God is at its heart about God's sovereignty, sweeping the world with love and power so that human beings, each made in God's image and each one loved dearly, may relax in the knowledge that God is in control. What I have is to be cared for by God. Hold on loosely. I, was, I had also not decided if I was going to say or sing that 1980s song, but I listened to it on the way over here. Uh, lastly, the third inward attitude of the spiritual discipline of simplicity is what I have is available to others. The rich man in this parable has no thought extending out the, outside the walls of his home, and he has no intention to live alongside those around him. Generosity or responsibility toward his fellow man never even cross his mind. Like, he could just relax and enjoy the gift and the privilege of plenty, take a breath, living a life in social agreement with those around him. Or he could hold so tightly to the things and plans for himself. So could I. Or let's reorient back to the way the audience would have heard, so would our culture. Our inward attitudes, individually and collectively, generate the actions that make up our culture and way of life. The attitude of the spiritual discipline of simplicity leads to peace and freedom, and the alternative leads to anxiety. I think for me, I get caught up in abandoning the spiritual discipline of simplicity and adopting this unhealthy mindset for a couple reasons. Like, yes, if I'm being honest, there is some level of appearances, comparison, keeping up with the Joneses. And I know that if we play this comparison game, there's always going to be someone richer than us, someone more obsessed with appearances than us. And that lulls and dulls rhyme, our, our pursuit of the spiritual discipline of simplicity, and it lulls, or dolls, our ability to see, to lovingly see the image of God in those others. We're back to this same malignant hierarchy of I'm better than you. Even more, though, for me, I think I crave the sense of security that comes with excess, or that I perceive would come with excess. But if I've earned what I have, and it's mine, so I need to take care of it, it just carries so much pressure. And it robs the vulnerable in our community of their sense of security. Lose, lose. So let's consider the last couple verses. Verse 21, or 20 and 21. But God said to him, fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. We aren't told the ending to the story, but I think that we assume that the rich man is not going to get the chance to stick around to relax and enjoy his grain and goods. Though cultural philosopher and theologian David Bentley Hart interprets verse 20 as your soul they demand from you referring less to the man's physical demise and speaking more to the ways in which our possessions demand our souls from us. So like physically dead or alive, a life lived for our culture of selfish ambition is dead on the inside. So we've talked about the inward attitudes. 
Now let's switch to the outward product of those inward attitudes. And I think it's particularly important to discuss those things that we know to be true, but we feel powerless to change our behavior. I work as a nurse practitioner during the week, and that necessarily includes a lot of discussion with patients on their modifiable risk factors. You know, the things they can change, their nutrition, their exercise, their compliance with their medications. For me, the discussion is fun and usually quite rewarding because for the past several years, considerable research has emerged regarding a technique called motivational interviewing. You very well may have heard of it. Basically, we're not supposed to recommend behavior change. It has nothing to do with like not hurting their feelings. It just is about what works, what conclusively, verifiably, reproducibly works. Like you can tell a smoker that they might get lung cancer or a diabetic, that they could lose their leg, and statistically, you may be right, but study after study demonstrates that even the most offensively horrifying threats do not compel empiric change in behavior. You know those TV ads against smoking where they're talking to you through their tracheostomy or like debilitated by a stroke? While those ads are important, they combat dollars spent by big tobacco, and they also do a good job at preventing the recruit of new smokers, they do not compel change in current smokers. Instead of threats and consequences, the focus has to be on what the subject values, stemming from what's already inside of them. Much like the spiritual discipline of simplicity, outward behavior is the product of what's within. People are primarily persuaded by things they hear themselves say. So the questions that have to be asked are, what concerns do you have about what smoking means for your future? Or how important is it for you to have your diabetes under control? And we're not putting our smoking and diabetic brothers and sisters uh, on blast here. There's a litany of other things, other questions you could ask yourselves or others. Um, and again, you can say what you want to, but this is about what works. Behavior change can only occur when three indicators come together. Willingness, ability, and readiness to change. So let's take a minute to really wrestle with the practical application of this passage and of the consistent themes that we've been studying in Acts. I'm really trying to sit in the tension, the cognitive diff cognitive dissonance between what we know and what we do, and then evaluate how important is it to you, to me, to us as a collective group to make some changes in our behavior. We've studied in Acts and today in Luke themes of finding meaning in what others consider mundane or useless, of studying, discerning, and applying theological education without letting it turn into law or into leverage against others, of identifying and speaking out against oppressive systems, of seeing the image of God in all our fellow humankind, of diligent and purposeful stewardship over those things entrusted into our little kingdoms without seeking to increase our personal gain and of actively combating the culture of personal gain. I'd like us to imagine for a moment the world opening back up, for real, the right way, without fear of disease, 
We've had a brief look at fear, sickness, life as we know it completely changed, though many have spoken up eager to help their neighbors. Now imagine you go to a job or you stay home to a job that weaves order and beauty into the world. You come home or you're already home and you spend precious time with those that you love. You are not riddled with guilt about doing more or being more. And checking off the boxes just doesn't even come to your mind. And I hope that you revel in your six-year-old, your four-year-old ambitions to watch TV all day, every day, sometimes. Because you know what you need. If you don't need more, you know you don't need more. There's no room for shame, no room for pride, no room for comparison to other people at all. You share your needs and your generosity and your pain and your joy with, other, with those around you, and doing so creates wellness. So what is possible? Remember, we were given this system as new adults, and that's not our fault. But when we have some awareness now, what do we do with it? So here are some ideas of what's possible. Get your calendar out or get a calendar. Think about what's meaningful to you and put it in there. Schedule some time to consider these dilemmas, to consider your relationship with money or your possessions. Schedule some time to pray and meditate. Give it a try, you'll miss it, but then try again. Go through your bank accounts or your budget and pinpoint areas that can be reallocated. Practice contentment. Don't buy everything, borrow and lend. Buy things for their usefulness not their status. Prioritize integrity and generosity over status. A lot of these ideas are also in that chapter on simplicity in the celebration of discipline. Start the habit of giving things away instead of always trying to make money. When the pandemic is over, go to an area of town that you normally wouldn't, a restaurant, a park, and get to know someone who isn't like you. Consider your vote. Does it demonstrate a profound concern for those who are not as well off? Do not vote with our personal, individual prosperity at the forefront. But I think the best thing that we can do is just to keep the conversation open, especially here. If we are the church, these conversations about our culture and our struggles, like are any of us not struggling with money or our relationship to money in some way, these conversations can be unifying and not divisive. We're here for each other. We aren't demanding that others live as simply as we do. Remember, it's visible. Others can see us. Could we get to the point where we can honestly look at our culture without rushing to the defense of the rich or the rich fool like I initially did? We can't get too bogged down with the ideas of outward simplicity and looking at what it looks like on the outside without revisiting those inward attitudes. Without simplicity, minimalism is like sleek, sexy countertops. Being frugal is miserly. We can get proud of our old beat-up shoes and clothes, and the responsibilities of stepping up for our community can get forgotten. Focusing on the kingdom of God first will allow our culture, our goals, our relationships, and our priorities to fall into place. 
What concerns do you have about what we are known for as a community of Christians? How important is it for our lives to demonstrate a profound concern for others? How does our current culture maintain the status quo for the vulnerable people around us? What would success for the vulnerable look like? Do I have the means to subvert the status quo? Do I have the desire to change it? Am I ready? The parable of the rich man uses wealth as an opportunity for us to take an honest look in the mirror at where we are and where we're headed. We do some great things here, but we have the privilege and the responsibility to continue to evaluate the ways in which we can represent each other better and bring the kingdom of God forward. When we study these challenging impositions that Jesus taught, that path toward the kingdom becomes clearer. Remember that what we have is a gift and should be cared for by God and available to others. What we value on the inside will be evident in our behavior. And behavior change can occur when we are willing, ready, and able. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us to feel connected, unified on our path toward a better tomorrow. I ask that you would give us courage and understanding for ourselves and for each other. Please help us to not lose focus on our role in your kingdom. Amen.